This, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. listeners, this is Brent Sutton. Welcome to the 46th episode of the Practice of Learning Teams podcast show. On today's show, Linus McCarthy, Brent Robinson and I start the conversation about learning from everyday work. During the writing of the book in 2019, we explored the opportunities for learning from everyday work using learning teams. We explored that historically, learning teams had mainly been used after events such as incidents or accidents to gain further understanding and learnings to make improvements to the system. And that organisations need to explore the broader view of opportunities for learning that are presented in everyday work, management of change and when events happened. And how those opportunities for learning impact worker learning at both an individual and work team level, operational learning and organisational learning. We explored that there are two types of opportunities for learning. One, to learn from successful work and unsuccessful work. And two, through the eyes of the worker and the organisation. When learning teams are undertaken for unsuccessful work, such as an event, the group recount using hindsight, the stories of how work gets done, including the normal variability, complexity and couplings that exist and how each person saw the event unfold. When learning teams are undertaken for successful work, the group will discuss and extrapolate using prior knowledge, observations and experiences about a present or known situation problem and that use that to foresee what could happen and the impact of workers, others and the organisation. This extends the notion and context of workers imagined and allows more transparency to the variability, complexity and couplings that exist. The opportunities to learn from successful work can be present before work starts, during work and completing work. In April 2021, we released a video on everyday learning where we explored a method of worker engagement and reflection in a construction environment. This video has had many thousands of views and many more organisations are now beginning to have the wider discussions on learning from everyday work. In late August, early September this year, we will be publishing a white paper on everyday learning in collaboration with Dr. Todd Conklin and Geoffrey Lith. Today's podcast is the start of that broader conversation. Please sit back and enjoy as we discuss the journey of everyday learning. I'm joined today by both Glynis McCarthy and Brent Robinson. The gang have all got together. And I'm sure Glynis will be on her best behaviour today. Very best behaviour. Very best behaviour. That's fantastic. And I thought what we might do today is just have a bit of a chat about everyday learning. Um, In the last couple of weeks, I was doing a podcast with Todd Conklin, and that got quite an interesting response from uh, the listeners on Todd's uh, podcast show, that the Pre-Accident Investigation Media Show. And um, that meant that he did a further podcast to try and find some clarity. 
So I thought it'd be really good for us to have that sort of general chat about everyday learning and why learning from everyday work is so important. Well, I think what we're finding, you know, when we're talking to the, the companies that we've been talking to is that it brings it down to the to that worker level. It's not coming, you know, it's an opportunity for people at the front line to talk about it. And I think if Brent, if we reflect back on that step video we shot with one of our clients a while back, those guys really found it interesting that it was worker driven. They were driving it. We weren't driving it. They were they were learning something new every day. And I thought I'd give you that example we've done some further work along those lines and it's um, and it really goes back to this discussion about weak signals is that what they were finding is every so often they'd go this is really hard or this is really difficult and but it wasn't happening every day and it was around a particular project that they were working on and what was happening is they were having to lift up panels between the building and the scaffold and what was problematic about it was there are other people on the scaffold so there are other trades on the scaffold um there were big panels 3.5 meters in length not particularly heavy about 30 kilos so two guys could easily um, maneuver them but it was problematic because they're having to do it one at a time and so this what we would call a weak signal was floating along and it was happening every couple of days or you know and they went back and started asking the guys this crew what that was about. They're saying, well, you know, this is crazy. It was on one elevation of the building. And they went and had a look at it and they found that they could, if they actually didn't use scaffold, change their method. The um, head contractor had a benefit. The guys putting doing the work had a benefit because they could do it quicker. They could load more. So it's not only, and it was safer. You know, they weren't banging around trying to crash around. And there was a real efficiency in what they they came up with. So they, not only do they get a good safety outcome, they got a really good um, productivity outcome. And the builder, the head contractor was pleased because he didn't have to provide scaffold on the next elevation they did. So I think, and you know, I think this gets lost sometimes that we talk about, you know, we're, we've been putting it in the safety context and what we're finding is productivity outcome for it as well. And you know, how often have we had that discussion with, or oh, how, how do you justify this to, our leadership it's pretty simple really isn't it both a safety and a productivity outcome i think it's a great out you know it's fantastic i think you raised a really good point brent i think that often what we do in safety is that we're operating within the organization in a bit of a silo so we have just the the safety hat on and yet there are other parts of the organization that might be looking at quality or our output um, you know that, that, that actually these things need to be thought about um, more holistically and making sure that we don't provide um, tools that our workers are using that are really blunt but actually aren't getting our workers to critically appraise practice and getting them to think about you know what what are they trying to do and how are they trying to do it how is uh, how do we ensure that people are able to do safe sustainable practice yeah and, and what i loved about this was it was actually just it wasn't a major complaint it was just this fairly weak signal that you know this is really painful it's really slowing us down um and it's um it's difficult to do and when when they look back over a, a period of a couple of weeks it sort of popped out that this same signal popped out about three or four times over a couple of weeks and that's how they got to it. 
it wasn't that it was on a report it wasn't a tick box it wasn't somebody that had come along and said why are you doing it that way it was just a conversation that was happening and it was filtering up to the top and it was, they were able to pick it out from the huge amount of noise that goes you know you know what a construction site's like huge amount of noise that was coming out of that particular organization and i, I think that's the power because it's happening at the front line I think those sort of weak signals that you can pick up from workers, whether they be about um, dangerous work or difficult work or, you know, things that don't make any sense to them, actually all of those signals, if you can identify trends, are going to help the business, aren't they? Yep. Whether they help them in the safety perspective or, or quality or, or what it might be, actually it's it's trying to, like you say, kind of hear those weak signals against all of that clutter and all of that noise that's operating in the background. Well, I think even- Jeff's... Jeff's really, Jeff Life has really brought this out on a few, on a few discussions we've had with him. And it's a, I think it's something really worth following up on. Yeah, around that four Ds, that um, yeah. sort of dumb, different, difficult, and dangerous conversation. But if we, um, if we reflect back on it, um, even if they had have had a formal safety system, even if the guys had written down on that JSA or that pre-start or that take five that day. Would anyone have ever picked that up in that data? No. That stays on site till they leave site and then it right. gets filed. And in all that, in all senses that of that word. Right. Never to be seen again. Until something goes wrong. Yeah. And then it becomes well, something evidence. Goes wrong. Yeah. But it also yeah. takes such a lot of uh, effort to actually find that information on those blunt tools and that I think is half the problem. Yeah. So even if they had have found it and even that form had have said, for instance, about that, it would not have given any context to the narrative of what the workers were dealing with. Exactly. There'd be no story that was coming out of it. Right. And then the, the, the ensuing discussion wouldn't have happened. And I think those are the two connect points, aren't they? Yeah, so then, so then the person who's actually reading that, who's doing that analysis, is now applying their own filter, their own lens on that data and only taking what they want from it. Yeah. So sort of the conversation we've been trying to have and, and the stuff that we're working on at the moment is that we've got to take data straight from the mouths of the people who are exposed to the risk using their language, using their narrative and then being able to um, identify those weak signals, that clustering of information and looking at that sentiment of that um, narrative from the workers as well. Because the organization can't see the forest from the trees. No. And, and what people are focusing on is the risk. And this would be seen as low risk because, you know, it, well, they weren't doing anything dangerous. It was just difficult, you know, and, the, and their view was it had to be better. So it's got to be a bit of then it would have become dangerous. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And I think from what you said to me, the alternative solution was that they basically, um, they're fitting the panel from the inside, which means that the workers are no longer technically working at height because they're they're on the inside. They've got um, a a full restraint so that they can no longer get near the edge. And they're they're putting four modules up at a time or four uh, panels up at a time instead of one individually at a time right so this is an efficiency as well yeah you know. so they've lowered they've lowered um the frequency of people in the area 
because I no longer have to work in the same zone as other workers. Yep. They've got rid of the risks associated with um, with uh, uh, working on scaffolding. Yep. And with uh, manual handling something. And and the upside is they can now install more panels in the same time than what they did before. So therefore, they're they're not exposed to the all the risks on a construction right. site. They've shortened their exposure, haven't they? Right. And they came up with that solution through the power of conversation. Yep. And do you think that they would have solved it themselves if they felt they had been empowered? Yeah, they and they sort of did, didn't they? They brought it up and then somebody helped them, enabled them to go to that next step. Right. And in so this that, case, it was the project manager. Right. So that's now the interesting conversation between control, which is what the organization's trying to exert on people through its systems and it processes versus enabling or supporting workers to make good decision making. Yeah. It's, it's a very powerful conversation, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I was working, I was talking uh, with a, with someone who I highly regard today, and yeah, we had that conversation about are organizations scared to learn? So by looking at this everyday learning, are we going to open Pandora's box? Because they, they felt that if they open if they open this pathway, then then every learning has to have some type of fix applied to the learning. Yeah, and we've heard this numerous times, haven't we? But the, I, I keep going back to lean because in that sort of lean context, if a work center or a work cell, a group of workers, a team, identify a problem, they found a red flashing light that they need to go and fix its particular problem they might have to, with their particular process they will run something like an eight-step problem solving tool and they're empowered to go and fix that they'll then show this is what we found this is what we're doing about it and this is when we think we'll be finished with it and it's stuck in that particular work area that's put up on the wall or on the side of the machine or wherever they're doing that work and it's not about the organization learning too much. They've just improved. So whether it's a safety improvement or it's a uh, productivity improvement, they have improved because they're in, they're, they've, been they've been enabled to improve. And it's not about too much learning at that point. Now, somebody, one of the supervisors might come along and go, hey, that's a really cool improvement. I think we should do it in this next work zone. And, th and that's how it should, you know, it sort of, grows through organic growth it's not about i have to collect all the stuff and we've done 19 learning teams this month and we meant to do 20. i think that's the wrong measurement i don't think we should be measuring that at all it's about just improving within those teams and they're enabling each other right so that's distinguishing the difference between workers learning and self-improving as a result yep versus organizational learning yes and in this case, what they're really saying here is that the organization can see the output of the improvement and then they can make some decisions about if they want to share that to others to gain other efficiencies mm. or to stimulate other conversations. I, and I think that's that's a really important point because if they just start spreading it across, saying, oh, we found this and we're going to share it with everybody, it won't be shared. You know, it, it, in my experience, it doesn't work like that. And it just becomes more noise. You've just, the organization is now creating noise. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that they need to be more discerning about it. 
and um, and let it happen. Cause, cause and power not, them. Yeah, because I think what's happening there is you're not sharing the fix. You're sharing what was the problem. Yes. What was the context around that problem? And what improvements that work group applied to that problem set. And it's that it's that narrative that needs to be shared rather than here is the fix that we found. Yep. Because without that context, that fix to another work group could actually introduce more risk. Yeah. Because you don't know what the, back to your point, you don't know what the context is that they're operating in. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the power of lean because lean, um, uh, when it talks about standardized work, it's talking about standardizing work within a work group. Yes. Not, Not within an organization. No. 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 Yet in safety, for some reason, we have these same fixed policies that we want to be applied in every scenario that could um, um, unfold. And we use um, bullshit language like, uh, you know, critical risks, uh, critical controls, um, golden, golden rules, rules. Yeah. mandatory, mandatory Man procedures. Absolutely. Yep. I think it's a bit of a fallacy to think that the Pandora's box, you know, is opened by by creating the opportunities for learning. Um, I think that, that that Pandora's box is already open. And what you have if you don't, if the organisation doesn't harness that learning um, and the opportunities for learning, then actually you just get seepage. Well, look, I, I would share with you when things go wrong, the regulator comes in, opens Pandora's box and rifles and, around and sees the festering mess that it is. <laughs> yes. And and that gap between work as imagined and work as done and work on the day of the event is the friggin' liability. Yep. And there's a difference between a gap and a chasm. A gap you can step over, a chasm you're gonna fall through. That's my shout out to the regulator, by the way. <laughs> Because that's their nice. job. That's yeah. their job. Yep. That's their job. That's their job. That's what they're there to do. And and look, and when I was talking to Todd, I, I, I put this challenge to him. I said, I actually I actually question if organizations know how to learn. That yes. they've they've been really sitting in this um, mode of uh, you know control fix. You know, control fix the sort of you know constant mode that they're going into. Which, by the way, they they think that means continuous improvement, but that, that's yeah. a different situation. And maybe we should have to be having the broader conversation about how they can learn, because organisations should think about learning from the point of view of the types of processes and the resources they have now. It's not about putting in new things. It's not about doubling your team. And it was really interesting that when I was having this conversation today and we're exploring uh, Eric Honagel's um, little concentric circle models of basically saying, you know, there are there are, are less accidents and incidents and we're far more successful than we are unsuccessful without actually having to put a number on it. If the organization looked at what resources it has to put in now to understand accidents and incidents, and if everyday work is a massive multiplier of that, you can see why it terrifies them because they're having, they're still using the same old construct and they're thinking they have to actually intervene, interfere, 
and control what's happening. But if you and if you take that particular discussion and you say, okay, if you're doing looking at everyday work, which is going successfully every day, and you're looking for small improvements, they're small incremental steps. Where when you look at an accident, it's a gigantic leap to get to that next level. And everybody's having an opinion and you're not necessarily learning anything, you just want to get the fix in. So either the, you've fixed the problem or the regulator's not going to prosecute you to the full extent that they possibly can. And they are two different levels that you're going to, aren't they? Yeah, Everyday well, learning and improvement and say, hey, we found something really cool, let's go and have a look at it. Absolutely. Versus I mean, that, that big fix. So that adaptive nature of work that happens every day, most of that is actually unintentional. The learning is not deliberate. It's just happening because of the adaption that's going on. And people are having to, to live or, or to work within that adaptive component. And of course, when the event happens, the reason why those weak signals then become strong signals is because it's an accumulation of all that micro change that's, that's happened. And that's what you see. And you know, I remember you know, Todd having this conversation. If you went out there and chose your most reliable person and followed the same investigation process, you would find a difference between work as a mansion and work as done. Yeah. Yep, because your investigation is a snapshot in time. But also the thing that you look at when you look at workers imagined, it's a solid black line, right? And if you look at quality, there's an upper and lower control limit. They know it's going to move, hmm. they, you know, and people, the system is designed to move with it. And when we come to safety, we think, oh, no, they, they, there's a violation there. They weren't following the... Um, they weren't following the um, procedure because they chose the wrong size forklift. Yep. You don't know why they chose the wrong size forklift. They just did on this particular occasion. There's no context around it. Now you've written them up for a violation. It makes no sense, right? You're not, nobody's winning out of that situation. You know, well, whatever the situation is. And I think that we've got to think that there's movement in there. What we don't want it to do is drop out of the lower control limit. Because yeah, well, that, that's the robustness of the system, isn't it? Having those yeah, lower it's the, cap limits. the capacity, as Todd would say, the capacity of the system yeah. for the fallibility of humans. Yep, and the people that are working within it, that's that resilient component as they get, as they go through. And, you know, think about humans, they're more resilient one day, they're less resilient the next day. Yep. But that's, that's the only guarantee in, in life with humans is that they continue to change and evolve over time so ultimately part of this broader conversation is that learning from everyday work doesn't actually have to be scary and we use that iceberg analogy and Todd called the podcast about sea level and he was basically saying that when organizations see things above the sea level things like you know incidents accidents um, when they go out and they make inquiries about things of course, things become quite obvious because they're being viewed through through a certain lens. Yes. And, and those things are an intervention because workers haven't asked for it. They're things that are being posed on them in that way. And then what sits below that line is the mass of the iceberg. And of course, we don't need to talk about what happened in 1912 with the Titanic 
between the UK and, and, and London. And I asked this question, what are we doing to understand what does the mass of the iceberg look like? Given that the iceberg is, go is going to change direction, given that the iceberg is going to shrink and grow based on the climate or the seasons that it's in, which of the things are we doing in safety at the moment that actually look at what the mass of the iceberg is? So if we think about a lot of our other, uh, what people might call leading indicators, things around, you know, pre-starts, take fives, observations, audits, all those things, do they actually do they actually look at what the mass of the iceberg is, or are they simply chipping away at the iceberg? They're only looking at what they can see, which is above the waterline. That's all. The, that's all they can do. You know, I, I was talking to a group the other day. They go, "No, no, we're really into it because we're doing um, the management group are going out and doing safety observations." I said, "How do you do that?" They go, "Oh, three of us go out. And we talk to the workers." I said, three of you at the same time." They go, "Yeah." I said. Betcha they um that has a particular reaction that you're not looking for. Oh no, they're really open to it. Yeah, I'm not so sure about that. You know, and again, you're only looking at the top of that iceberg, aren't you? You're only going to see what you can see. And you're only going to see strong signals. Yes. You're yes. not going to be seeing weak signals because those weak signals are, are, are sitting there under under that sea level, and 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 they're moving. And it doesn't matter why they move. It doesn't matter how many they are. They're just going to be present. Yeah. And they don't form regular patterns either. Yeah. So what we've sort of been talking about and what we're sort of proposing is that the stuff that sits below the iceberg um, can't be led by the organisation because it can't be based on a form of intervention because the only people that actually know what the iceberg looks like are the people that actually have to do the work, the job, the yep. people who are exposed to the risk. So how do we get those people to, to lead that, to be involved in that? Because they need a strong sense of ownership. So workers need to lead that, and then the organization simply needs to support them and understand them, yep. not control it. What it does need to do, and I think I like the idea that you talk about upper and lower limits. You know, the organization, uh, once it starts to see those weak signals, it gets to understand why those weak signals exist because that will come from the narrative of the workers, then that's when they can run an intervention. Now, interventions, we shouldn't think of interventions in a negative con um, con context, if that makes sense. To me, an intervention is, is something that the worker hasn't asked for, it's the organisation has imposed it on them. Uh, a classic one is a, is a um, pre-start meeting. Yes. Yeah. Is it voluntary? No, mandatory from what I understand. Mandatory. And, and that's a form of, um, of of being imposed. So it's about having that broader conversation. It's about that control thing. And what the organisation can then do is that by, by understanding that narrative, understanding what's happening amongst those workers that are being led by workers, then it can run things like a learning team to get better understanding. So it's not having to match. So when we think about the four Ds, it's not having to match every single four D that gets reported by the worker, that it has to lead to some type of improvement or learning. 
No, and I think if that's what people are expecting, that's not going to help at all, because the volume is is crazy. And what you're looking for is the pattern, the repeating occurrence of something happening over a period of time is where the strength comes from, or not the strength, but where the the um, it is strength. The strength it's strengthening the signal because you're not looking at one data point; you're looking at many data points with the same outcome, with the same piece of information coming to you. Thank you listeners for being part of this podcast. We would love to hear your learnings or other topics you would like us to explore about learning teams. Go to www.podcastlearnings.com and give us your feedback. Become part of the community of practice with learning teams. Go to www.learningteamscommunity.com. Support the authors of the practice of learning teams. Purchase the book from Amazon.com or go to www.learningteamsbook.com for an inside look and other free book resources from the authors. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.